As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. So, Tracy, uh, we have a lot of anniversaries coming up in terms of major financial news and events in financial history. Oh, yeah. Well, we we have, let's see, the 10-year anniversary of the 2008 financial crisis. That's next year. But right. even more importantly, I think we have the 30th anniversary of the movie Wall Street coming up in December. That's the one I'm the most excited about. Oh, that, that's the real, that's the real, <laughs> anniv- that's the big one. Yeah, I know. I think we may have talked about it before, but I'm kind of dreading the next two years and hearing everyone, including many of our colleagues, just endlessly recant war stories about I was there the day this bank uh, <laughs> you know, went bankrupt and here's the thing I wrote or whatever. It's like we are going to have two straight years of that. Joe, I'm going to love it, and I'm going to force you to sit through an entire Odd Lots episode where I just talk about September 2008. All the great coverage you did during that time. Yeah, exactly. But uh, <laughs> besides the movie Wall Street and besides the financial crisis, we are at another really important 30-year anniversary. And, of course, that is the 30-year anniversary of the Black Monday crash in 1987. Oh, has it been 30 years already? Can you believe that? We are old. We are old. You know, we think in our history is like, okay, there was this crash. The stock market um, fell a lot in a very short period of time. And then the Mm. stock market recovered. And then we kind of move on. But I think you would agree that there is a lot of fascinating stuff to unpack from this experience in in terms of what it tells us about how markets work and how traders work and all that kind of stuff like that. Oh, yeah. People have been drawing lots of parallels to Black Monday recently, um, and I'm sure we can get into that later. But more importantly, I think there's a tendency as we get further and further away from these events to kind of forget about what a big deal they actually were at the time. And Black Monday in particular was huge for markets and led to um, some regulatory reform. But when you contrast it with what happened in 2008, it kind of seems like there was a a fairly quick rebound. Um, But, you know, the actual day, the actual event was just huge and full of drama. Not that I was there, but... No, but uh, from what from what we understand, I don't recall it either. And not that I, not too much of a sad. I was seven years old at the time, but I don't remember it in the news. I mean, I was kind of aware of some stuff. Do you remember it? 
No, I was yeah. even younger. Um, I thought you were going to tell me that you were trading futures at the time. No. Or Euro dollars or I, something. <laughs> okay. I good. was not. Anyway, <laughs> I'm very excited about today's episode because we are going to be talking about someone who, unlike us, lived through Black Monday. He was an active trader. He still is active, but he was active during the crash. Hmm. And he's known for having made crucial trades uh, the day after that performed very well. So I don't think, um, I think we're going to get a very rare perspective on this event today. This sounds amazing. I want to hear all the anecdotes. Me too. So without further ado, I want to bring in Blair Hall. He was the founder of Hall Trading Company in 1985, so just a couple of years before Black Monday. He's still active in proprietary trading. He has a firm called Ketchum Trading. He even has his uh, an ETF that's based on his uh, you know, market timing. And he's featured in Black Monday Revisited, an oral history of the crash. It's put together by Richard Dewey. It's running in this month's issue of Bloomberg Markets Magazine. It's really awesome. Amazing oral history. The piece also features Peter Borish, Michael Lewis, Jim Chanos, Nassim Taleb. Gotta check it out. So pretty much the perfect person to talk to about this historical episode. Blair Hall, thank you very much for joining the Odd Lots podcast. Sure. It's good to be with you, Joe. Tell us, first of all, I'm curious, what did you make of our intro? Do you think we characterized uh, the events of 1987 or we basically sort of framed its historical context well? And can you tell us what you were doing at that time career-wise and professionally leading up to this big event? Well, first, I think it is an important time. Uh, first of all, um, the 87 crash was caused by uh, some factors that we now know about, and as a result, uh, we have uh, made some market reforms that I think will uh, reduce um, the probability of a catastrophic event in financial markets, and as a result, volatility will be less in the future. But it was a, it was a very crazy time. Uh, what happened is the market had gone through some. It was down five percent the previous week, and then it was it was down. Uh, it was down on Monday, and and everybody knew that it would be down again on Tuesday, but we didn't know to what an extent it would be down. And um, there was an event called um, in portfolio insurance, or there, there was a, a an activity called portfolio insurance that really exacerbated the crash and caused this extreme movement, uh, all in uh, all in just a couple days. Wait, wait, wait. We're going to dig into all of that. But before we do, what were you doing before 1987? Uh, well, I was a market maker. Actually, I had been a, a blackjack player before then. I was a card counter in Las Vegas. Hmm. I had bought a seat on the Pacific Stock Exchange. And then I had built a firm that had about 20 employers, uh, employees uh, that were making markets in uh, index options and futures and stocks. And so we had a presence on uh, most of the major exchanges um, in, at, at that time. So, uh, and one of the things we had is, a, is a, a screen that would automatically provide option quotes. We were one of the first people to automate the process of uh, creating mm -hmm. quotes for, as an options market maker. And I was on the Chicago Board of Options Exchange in the SPX pit, uh, 
which had just been um, really just been created. Uh, so that morning, um, Tuesday morning, and that's where I I was at that time with as part of uh, a firm. We had a firm of about uh, twenty people uh, at that time. So from what I remember, um, options were booming in the 1980s, right? And that was partially off the back of the creation of Black Shoals or the discovery of Black Shoals. Can you kind of walk us through what that market looked like, you know, the day before Black Monday or Black Tuesday happened? Well, the Chicago Board of Options Exchange was the largest exchange at that time, although the American Stock Exchange uh, existed along with the the Pacific and Philadelphia. Um, So... Um, we had uh, uh, we were trading calls and puts on the S and P five hundred in a in a in a pit in open outcry at that time. Blair, there's so many things that I want to ask you, um, but I feel like I'm going to forget to ask you about this if I don't do it right now. But just briefly, tell us a little bit about the skill overlap between going from being a blackjack card counter to a stock trader. We talk about gambling a lot in various ways on this podcast, but I'd love to hear it from your perspective. What specifically is the skill set that sort of transcends both things? Well, there there are two skills, really. Uh, One is dealing with risk and capital fluctuations. That's one skill. And then the second skill is dealing, working with a team. I was part of a team playing Mm. blackjack in Las Vegas. And so... Um, both of those skills, first of all, the capital fluctuations, even though you have an advantage in any kind of a game or a marketplace, you will have capital fluctuations and capital drawdowns. You will go through bad periods. But you have to understand that you do have an edge in the long run and have faith in that. And you have to be able to withstand those losses and stay in there and keep operating, operating in a rational and objective way throughout that time. So it's emotional uh, it's, it's, it's really uh, learning to deal with your emotions is part of it. And the other part is that uh, you need to be able to work with other people in, in, in a collaborative way. And that skill, of course, is, is, uh, is very important also. And is this so that in the context of blackjack, so that the casinos don't recognize you as a card counter? Being recognized is another issue completely. Um, oh. No, no, that, that wouldn't be. It's, it's just in terms of... Um, um, just working in a team. Um, people that do significant things um, collaborate with others. Got it. So uh, Joe always brings it back to either um, gambling or chess, usually. Uh, but just to stick to the theme, I mean, there there is a link between um, gambling in Vegas, say, and Black Shoals and Black Monday, right? Like people talk about the Kelly Criterion and Ed Thorpe and Merton Scholes. Can you kind of square that for us or give us the background? Uh, I always say it's getting an edge and staying in the game. Staying in the game is knowing how much money to put on the table at any one time. And if you lose mm. half your bankroll or half your trading account, you must reduce your size of your positions by half. Uh, and so that uh, relates to the Kelly criteria of knowing how much to um, capital to put at risk at any one time and being able to adjust that as your capital uh, either increases or decreases. Let's go back to the events of Black Monday. So one thing I realized we didn't say is that how bad Black Monday was, 
if for people not familiar with it, the Dow fell over 20% in one day. Absolutely. 508 extro- points, famously. Which, you know, these days may not be uh, that much or kind of, you know, a volatile day, but tw- just an absolutely extraordinary one day sell off, the likes of which financial markets had really not seen before on such a grand scale. There's also crashes all around the world. But uh, let's go to that Tuesday. So walk us through the event. Obviously, everybody completely fried or stunned by the events of the day before. Tell us about how you were thinking going into the markets that Tuesday morning and how people were behaving. Well, we had uh, screens uh, that actually displayed our prices uh, in the SPX pit at the Chicago Board of Options Exchange. And so these were prices that you allegedly could trade on. And uh, in today's market, you can trade on them. In in those days, they were representative quotes. And so we give, gave our best estimate of where volatility was. And I don't have the exact numbers here, but I think we were guessing that volatility would have uh, risen from something like 20 to 40. But when implied volatility opened at 60, it was... Uh, as a mark, as the lead market maker in the SPX pit, uh, we were essentially run over by orders. We could not respond fast enough to these, uh, move our markets fast enough uh, to even stay somewhat in the game. Uh, it was an extremely stressful time where everybody was fighting to get any kind of protection they could on the downside. So an open outcry pit, people are physically uh, trading, right? You're, were you doing the hand signals and, and all of that? Oh, it's voice and hand signals, yes, both. So what was the atmosphere like then on that day? When there's an extreme move either way, uh, there is usually a, and there was at that time, a, um, uh, there were a lot of people in the pits. And uh, when I alluded to, I think earlier we talked about how uh, later in the week, as um, actually people were so scared, and the Fed had increased capital requirements, we actually had a, there were fewer people in the pits uh, later in the week. Uh, but that morning, it was extremely chaotic, and nobody knew um, um, what was going to happen. So what did markets do in the early hours of that Tuesday? And then what did you do in particular to sort of, uh, you know, take adv- spot an opportunity in the chaos? And why did you sense that there was an opportunity then? Uh, what happened is the market actually uh, rallied Tuesday morning, but then it continued to sell off. And uh, we suspect that was because of the portfolio insurance orders that had not been executed from the previous day. So uh, the market um, had a steady decline. Um, at that time, we, uh, the Chicago Board of uh, Trade had a contract called the Major Market Index. And we were uh, one of the one of the larger market makers trading across index products. So we had um, we had positions in the New York Stock Exchange Index on the uh, NYA. And we had a position in the uh, the OEX and the SPX at the in the SPX, and we also had a a position in the major market index at the Board of Trade, which is was a mirror of the Dow average. So it was included twenty stocks. 20 large stocks. We had positions all across the board and had to keep track of whether we were, we were trying to stay neutral relative to the marketplace. But the reason that I had to go over to the major market index was that um, 
there were no brokers in the pit that mm. could execute our orders because the Merck, the Chicago Mercantile, and the Board of Trade had said, you must have at least $100,000 in your account as a broker to execute orders for other people. And as a result, many brokers were excluded from participating. And there was no broker, outside broker, that could trade for us. Normally, we went through a broker in that pit. But I happened to have uh, the full Board of Trade seat and so I could go over and personally trade. So even though I was hmm. the head of the firm at that time and would not normally be doing a, a trading in one of those futures pit, pits, uh, I did go. I, I did walk across the street from the CBOE to the Board of Trade. You jumped in. But this is, uh, this is what I want to ask, because in the 2008 financial crisis, one of the accusations thrown at um, some of the big market makers was that they just stopped picking up their phone um, and taking orders. Was there any of that on Black Tuesday? I realized some people couldn't trade because they didn't have enough capital. But did anyone just kind of throw their hands up and walk away and say, this is too much? Yes, essentially, the specialists in New York were not picking up the phone. In Chicago, there was a pit. So there were those people that were there, and some of them would be quiet, and others would open their mouth. Uh, in fact, uh, one, of the, one of the things I actually learned from a, a colleague over at the Chicago Board of Options Exchange uh, with, by the name of John Stafford, we had uh, traded together, and one of the things that he did is he, uh, he said that when somebody comes in with an order, you always respond to them even if you can figure out what the price should be, because these are complicated options trades and futures trades. Mm-hmm. Um, but you always respond to them. It may be with a ridiculous price, with an extremely wide market, but you always respond. So I was in the mode of always responding to, uh, which sometimes can get you into trouble, but uh, in this case, it uh, worked to my advantage. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Fill in the details there in terms of how it worked to your advantage. You you had this opportunity of essentially being the only person in this position that you were in. How did things then uh, sort of settle out for you in the days and weeks ahead? Well, that uh, first of all, the, the key was that morning when the market continued to uh, decline. And, of course, it looked like it was never going to end. And so what, uh, what I did uh, was that I was in the major market uh, pit, and I had been a small buyer trying to reduce our short position. So I was buying five small lots of twos and threes and fours and fives to, to, to try to reduce our position. But... There was a rumor that they were going to halt trading on the Chicago in the Chicago Mercantile in the futures contract. That was the mm-hmm. big contract, and so if they halted that, I was fearful that they would halt for a couple days even. 
So I actually sent, I actually asked somebody from the firm to go over to the library and do research to determine what happens on trading halts. Now, this was a completely <laughs> ridiculous request because we obviously didn't have time. We only had about 20 people in the firm. We didn't have time to send somebody over to the library. And in those days, we didn't have Google. I had a sense that if they were going to halt trading, that this was a buying opportunity because uh, it, the panic had gone too far. And so I told told the firm to be long on the halt. Um, so we were acquiring a position at all at, at this time. Well, it ends up that um, Drexel Burnham, of course, a firm that doesn't longer exist, is, had a seller who was selling his position, and they needed to sell this position. I guess the client had said, we need to sell it. They knew that it was a very orderly pit, and uh, one of the things that happened was that Pat Arbor, who was chairman of the Board of Trade at that time, did not get enough credit for actually keeping that market open the entire time. And it was a very orderly market with about, oh, no more than 20 participants. Uh, but uh, I wish he, had, he should have gotten more credit for uh, not panicking and closing the markets. So as things started to decline, Drexel Burnham had a big order to sell. And uh, knowing that I was... I had been probably the only buyer in the in the pit, uh, consistent buyer. Uh, they they said, "Where will you buy a hundred? And I gave them a ridiculous price, and um, they said, "You own them." I was uh, scared to death, uh, had a big lump <laughs> in my throat, uh, and uh, immediately told the firm that we were long a hundred contracts. It was an extremely large trade, um, and. Um, I think the, uh, one of the things is the market was trading in extremely wide increments. Uh, it had normally traded in five and ten cent increments, so it was trading about two ninety. It would have been two ninety and five cents at ten cents. And in this case, it was two ninety at two ninety five, and there was a uh, there were bids at two ninety. He actually, because it was a large contract, he said, "I'll sell them at two eighty five. So I bought these contracts at two eighty five. Trades two eighty seven. Trades two eighty eight. And and he says, then, I'll say another 50 at the <laughs> 285. I bought them and uh, considered cha- I considered sharing some of those contracts with the rest of the pit. And by the time I'd, anything had happened, it was trading. It was 290 bid. It was 295 bid. And uh, later in the day, I think it finished somewhere in the 360s, 360, 370. So it it seems so simple in retrospect that you kind of stayed calm and started buying when other people were really panicking and selling. What was it that you saw that other people like Drexel didn't? Or what was it about your position that allowed you to do that but prevented them from doing a similar thing? Well, I was providing liquidity. So they were they were forcing the market. I did have a sense. I did know that um, uh, I didn't know, but I had a sense that a trading halt provided an opportunity. So that was the reason that I provided liquidity on that side, especially. And it was also in conjunction with the fact that the uh, the feds had, uh, had, re- had raised margins. So we then also had to reduce positions. So I was in the right place at the right time uh, with some sense that uh, this, was a, this was an opportunity. So... We have to just about wrap it up here, but I have a, 
a one very quick question, one slightly longer question. The first question is, can you tell us, you know, how much in the end your firm made from this trade? But more importantly, as we look at the market now and people worry about whether we see things like the echoes of portfolio insurance uh, reemerging and other sort of volatility products and so forth, what do you think are the key things to understand about the vulnerabilities of uh, market structure today? Well, I think um, in retrospect, I actually do. Mark, I do know Mark Rubenstein, uh, who was the really the creator of portfolio insurance. And actually, I have a house in California, and he was at a party at my house uh, after the crash. Uh, must have been early November, and he was so sad. He was distraught. He said, "I caused the crash." Later, even though it wasn't well known at that time, it was in fact true that the crash was exacerbated by portfolio insurance, which now today with the liquidity that is in the market is probably a very viable product. He was distraught. He's a very honorable man. And uh, he, uh, along with um, was Hayne Leland and John O'Brien, they were uh, the founders of um, of portfolio insurance, uh, but um, now with the circuit breakers and the tremendous liquidity that is provided by by proprietary traders, uh, I think portfolio insurance now is is a viable product where it wasn't at that time. So it's just too ahead of the time. Blair, can I just press this issue? Because um, a number of people have brought up parallels to portfolio insurance. So, for instance, um, the risk parity strategies that kind of assume a relationship between bonds and equities, um, various types of programmatic trading, uh, sometimes even uh, volatility trading. Do you see any parallels between you know a potential Black Monday, Black Tuesday situation and some of those more modern strategies? Mm, I haven't thought about this uh to a large extent, uh, but I don't think there's, um, I mean, at that time, this was a tremendous, there was a tremendous amount of money in this strategy relative to the liquidity that could have been provided. I think there are more diverse strategies now. A risk parity is, uh, can be adjusted over um, periods of time that have to do with the volatility of each instrument, and so as a result, uh, the, those adjustments occur uh, on a uh, on a more gradual basis, um, I don't see one strategy that is uh, overwhelming the others, and so with the circuit breakers that we have in place, I think that's uh, and the market structure has caused uh, really this this decline in volatility. We're at ext- historic lows in volatility. I find it interesting the press that says that you know we're in crazy times we're not we're in a very stable times uh, from a volatility standpoint or at this point in time from our perspective in the press we might even say it's too stable we need more interesting stories <laughs> blair hall is fascinating to talk to great to get your perspective love hearing the stories of uh, you know this sort of different era of trading really appreciate you coming on my pleasure
so Tracy, I love hearing about sort of different eras of trading and what it was mm. like. And so obviously crashes and huge crashes can happen at any time and there'll, there'll be big ones again in our future. But thinking about things like being the only f- person physically in the room or having yeah. to go to the library and look up how the rules of a trading <laughs> halt could theoretically affect markets, that's distinct to a certain time. And it's sort of like, uh, you know, I find it very interesting. Yeah, um, I thought it was really sad that that little bit, um, that anecdote about Mark Rubenstein going to the party and saying that he caused the crash, because, of course, the whole idea about portfolio insurance was that you protect yourself in times of crash. Um, So poor guy, kind of. Um, You know, one thought that struck me, some things are the same uh, when it comes to trading, like the notion of some market makers just panicking and not picking up their phones that happened, you know, in 2008. But I wonder if there's one thing that's different now. And that's the sort of regulation and legal aspect of everything. Like, I just wonder, if you really had the market falling apart, how many compliance people are you going to have descending on your market making or maybe even prop trading um, units or teams? telling you that you can't in all honesty do anything because you just don't know what's going on and you have a whatever an obligation to your shareholders or clients i just wonder if that's the thing that's going to change this time around yeah and it's really interesting that lesson that sort of trading lesson here related about you know if you don't know what to do Mm. don't say you don't know what to do don't not answer the phone just go out there with a ridiculous quote. So just, right. in other words, give yourself a huge margin of error to be wrong. And if the client, if the person on the other end of the trade doesn't want to take it because they think that's a ridiculous quote, then okay, they don't have to. But if they do take it, then you give yourself the opportunity to make a, uh, you know, you put the choice back on them, but you give yourself an opportunity to potentially make a lot of money. Just seems like one of those like interesting ideas about how in, an, in a period of extreme volatility or extreme Mm. moves, you can sort of uh, protect yourself uh, in that way. Continue your obligation as a trader, as a Mm. market maker, but give yourself, you know, that cushion. But again, you have to have a lot of autonomy and a lot of confidence to do that. And I wonder if that's kind of what's lacking uh, in modern finance. I guess we'll find out the next time we have a uh, flash crash or uh, Black uh, Friday or Black Monday or Black Tuesday or Black any day of the week uh, type event. And there will definitely be those days. And hopefully we're still doing our podcast by the time the next one comes <laughs> so we can talk about it. Yeah, and we'll actually be there and we'll have uh, war stories of our own to tell. Exactly. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And I'm Tracy Alloway. I'm on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And you can follow our producer, Sarah Patterson, on Twitter at Sarah Pat with two T's. Thanks for listening. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. 
Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.